Episode 64 of Rank and Review, Ghosts, Volume 5. Returning guest Matthew Risling comes to discuss six films on the subjects of ghosts. And yes, if that sounds familiar, we have been here four times before, and we may yet be here again. Uh, so thank you for coming back for this exciting installment of Rank and Review, and I certainly hope you enjoy it. But also, please go into the podcast as usual, anticipating that there may indeed be some coarse language and some spoilers for the films discussed. Please find Rank and Review at rankandreview.ca. Have a look at the website, and you can look at some of uh, the episodes in our back catalog. You can also find Rank and Review on iTunes and on Facebook. And if you could do me a favor, your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons, just do me a solid and spread the word on the podcast to your other movie friends, because I would just love to get an audience for this podcast going. So without further ado, welcome to episode 64 of Rank and Review. Um, welcome to Rank and Review, and uh, welcome to my returning guest, Matthew Risling, for your fourth ghost podcast with me. Yep, number four of ghosts so far. Yeah. Uh, only the third one with the poltergeist. Uh, <laughs> Four ghosts, and, and we thought we were done with Poltergeist, but now there's this damn remake that we're going to have to deal with. I know, I totally wanted to do the creature feature. And, <laughs> I mean, I gotta, I gotta kill off the Poltergeist franchise, just like when, somebody should have done years ago. Just when you think that you're out, they pull you back in. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I don't know, I mean, we've done this several times before. I mean, I could ask you, what is your interest in ghosts, or, or, or are, are you tiring of the subject matter yet after this many... I've feel like if you have any repeat uh, listeners, they know of my interest in goats, uh, goats, ghosts, and my uh, trauma from the Poltergeist movie when I was seven. Um, but yeah, uh, I just wanted to do this because actually now this is a Christmas tradition for me. This is the third consecutive Christmas that I've just basically hung out by myself and watched ghost movies for your uh, fucking podcast. <laughs> well... I appreciate you doing it. Um, are you? Do you find that you're worn out of watching all of these ghost movies? Like, uh, let's let's do some basic math. What's six times four? Twenty four. <laughs> <laughs> um, I perhaps would have been, except for 
the first two that you had me do were by far the worst lists. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, this this was not a tedious list at all. I thought it would be far more tedious than it was. We're agreed then that, like, uh, although some of the movies in this list is problematic, that we still have a fairly, you know, watchable group of ghost movies. Yeah, I would say, uh, which actually makes it kind of difficult for me to rank. Yeah. Um, which means I may not be taking the belt this time because so many of them are sort of tied with each other in the low Bs. I think that if in order, you got to look at those lists. I think you need to find one where the, the, like the, the bottom and the top are really obvious. And that yeah. sort of takes like, like, like a third of the list is taken care of right there. <laughs> well, I, I would be super surprised if we don't have the same top and bottom movie uh, <laughs> on this list. Well, we shall Although see. Although I would love to see, I would love to hear your justification if we don't have the same. I guess, uh, I guess time will tell. Well, we've been having some more and more scrappy episodes on rank and review, so time will tell. Um, yeah, I kind of want to get into a fight with you on this. It feels like uh, you're kind of going round and round with your other guests, and you and I have been a little bit too collegial with each other. We'll find something. Even, we'll, even if we agree on a movie, we'll, we'll disagree about why it's good or bad. Yeah, let's do that. The, the six movies that we are going to discuss, we have a big supernatural blockbuster from a couple years ago, The Conjuring, from James Wan, who created Saw and Insidious. Uh, we have the telling of a quite interesting, actually, uh, gothic-themed novel, The Woman in Black, starring Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we have Poltergeist 3. I know we've been waiting for this one. You know, the circle <laughs> closes. <laughs> what, what happens with Kane? People want to know. Um, from Alexander Aja, uh, we have Mirrors, which is a remake of a, a South Korean film, I want to say, called Into the Mirror. Yep. And uh, we have a, another remake, The House on Haunted Hill. And we're going to wrap it up with the television epic, Stephen King's. Rose Red. Is there anything... Hey, oh, sorry, what? Uh-huh. I'm just wondering, was Rose Red a big deal when it came out? Because I had never heard of it. But It was a big deal in that it was written exclusively for television. There's no uh, sort of book source or short story source other than stuff that he ripped off, as we'll talk about when we get to the review. But it was sort of a big deal in that this was something that you could only see on network television. This was Stephen King's big badass haunted house movie. So. Okay. Um, I guess we'll talk more about that later. Agreed. Is there anything you want to say before we jump into this? No, let's jump straight in. Let's do it. We have to get out of here. That's not going to help. This thing has latched itself to your family. Uh, we never seen nothing like this. I'm coming with you. No way. I can't lose you. There's a lady in a dirty nightgown that I see in my dreams. She's standing in front of my mom's bed. Do you want to see him? Yeah. When the music stops, you see him in the mirror standing behind you. So, uh, one of the biggest horror hits in recent memory uh, is how we're going to start out this episode. Uh, it's called The Conjuring. It's directed by James Wan, and uh, he brought us Saw, and he brought us Insidious, and uh, apparently he's just done one of the Fast and the Furious movies, which I still I haven't really seen any of those, believe it or not. 
Um, no, I'm hoping to get through my entire life without seeing any movie about somebody that is fast and or furious. <laughs> well, we'll see. It may be harder than you think. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was a monster hit, and it's definitely got this retro ghost thriller vibe, and it's got this horror movie sort of pastiche thing where it's based on a true story. <laughs> um, yeah, and- and uh, it's a remarkable movie in that uh, it's one of the rare, it's a rare ghost movie to get an R rating, and it got an R rating for having no nudity, minimal violence, no drug use, nothing that tends to get movies R ratings. Right. Um, it just got an R rating on the strength of how scary it is, yeah. or how scary it is in parts. And I guess I would agree. I mean, I don't know that I would say kids should watch The Conjuring. <laughs> but uh, I guess to open up, uh, it, it concerns this uh, paranormal investigative couple, the Warrens, who are asked to come look at this farmhouse, which a family has recently moved into, and all sorts of ghostly shenanigans are going on. Uh, do you think that The Conjuring lives up to the hype? Um Yes and no, I suppose. Um, it's a good question because... This movie is alternately excellent and pretty good. Um, I don't think that there are... There are moments in this that are certainly weaker than other moments. Um, there's nothing about it that I really think is bad. And I I didn't really see a lot of the hype. I sort of peripherally knew that it existed. Um, and when I saw it, I was, I was actually quite impressed by how horrific it was in some parts, particularly towards the first half. Um, and then it it never really got bad, but it felt like it sort of started to peter out in some ways, or got maybe it got quite familiar in some ways. Yeah, I will agree with you that I think that the first half of the movie is way more entertaining and way more frightening than the second, and I think that's because the deeper into the movie, the more either worn out by the familiarity or the just more directly familiar these scenes do become. It sort of culminates in an exorcism scene that I, I've seen so many times just to, just within my podcast you know um but what, what... well yeah and one of the one of the notes i have about it is everything it did was it did pretty well but there were so many familiar tropes right yeah. like it didn't really bring anything unique into the genre um but it just had so many of the things that you would expect to see so you know has the dog barking at the house it has the spooky doll it has this spooky kid who seems to be having an imaginary friend um you know the old house just you name something that you would expect to find in this movie and it's probably in this movie stuff so well worn it shouldn't work and i remember saying a similar thing when uh jay adrian cook and i reviewed insidious it was like you're using a bunch of ingredients that we've seen a dozen times before effectively and I think that that is like a skill because like, again, all these scares shouldn't be as effective as they are in this movie, but like they're just very well executed. Um, but I think it's the build that works and the payoff that doesn't as much. Yeah, what I found worked really well is when the director sort of reeled himself back a little bit or, or um, maybe reined himself in a, a bit would be a better way to say it. Um, they had one of, for me, the scariest scenes that I've seen in recent years, uh, where it's two little girls in a room. The audience is pretty sure that there are ghosts by now. Uh, and one of the girls sees something in a shadow in the corner and she's walking towards it. And we, um, like the door is halfway open, I think, which is casting a shadow. 
and she is seeing something in it, but most of the shot is her sister reacting to what she's seeing. So as the audience, we're just seeing this this girl's face, um, and the amount of terror on her face, and, the, and just the way that the movie sells it, um, it's so minimal. It's done without any special effects. One of my other notes is throughout the movie, the ambient music for the most part is pretty conservative. So it's not it's Over not too top. bombastic, like get scared now. Yeah. And so when you have these these moments where it's just the shadows and it's just the actors, um, and they did a good job of casting um, the kids in this family, uh, I, I thought that worked extremely well. And that can totally blow it for you. If you have a weak kid performance, if we don't believe the kids, that's not going to... With the Jeopardy, a lot of it comes from the children, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, but you could um, juxtapose that with one of what I think is kind of the weaker moments in it. Um, it begins with this odd, almost a little vignette about these college kids that have a haunted doll. Correct. Annabelle. And... Yeah, and the thing about Annabelle is it could be really spooky. Um, Haunted dolls can be really terrified, but this one looked like whoever the props person was was tasked with building an evil-looking doll, so it it just looked too grotesque. It looked like a monster doll toy. On the nose. It's what you would expect an evil haunted doll to look like. Yeah. (laughs) If you Um, went to a store to buy a a mock-up of an evil demonic doll, that's what it would look like. Yeah, and because it looked so much like the evil demonic doll that it should look like... I mean, the, the thing that makes dolls creepy, the thing about porcelain dolls, why they are so often creepy, is because of how neutral their expressions are and just how how blank and they've got those beady little eyes that kind of follow you. You don't need to make it look like a demon doll. Like Your audience will get the idea. And something that the director is conscious of in his better moments, that the sort of less is more works so well in this. And then when he wants to do the more is more, I find it sort of kicked me out from time to time. I mean, Annabelle got her own movie. I just sort of found the prologue. I mean, it was fine. It just seemed a little bit needless. Like, I don't know why we spent that time on the doll. Um, if you wanted to set up the Warrens, which you obviously need to do, I guess I, I get that. But I don't get that as your entry point. You know. Well, and it also set up, uh, I think, one of the most pointless fake scares at the end. So at some point, um, towards the end of the movie, the doll Annabelle... I don't know if I should say comes to life, but starts doing spooky things um, because the Warrens, who are these supposedly real-world exorcist types, have this room full of creepy souvenirs. Um, The souvenirs that we know are still evil, so they can only stay in the Warrens' house because they're too powerful for other people. So at some point, the doll gets out and starts chasing the Warrens' little girl around their house, uh, and then whatever, the, the... main plot resolves itself and then it has one of those fake out endings where it seems like everything's fine but it doesn't fade to black in credit so we know something's going to happen and then it ends with this shot of Annabelle with the music to indicate that that doll is still alive and evil well we already knew it was it was alive and evil that's why it was in the cabinet <laughs> and we, they were just selling tickets for Annabelle and it had nothing to do with the conjuring much like like this whole conversation is like a complete side <laughs> aside to the thrust of the story my point is that the whole side story of the doll didn't need to be there it seems like a built-in advertisement for their next movie you know, <laughs> yeah. um, but that's the only thing that like one of the real notches I'll take against it. I gotta say I love the cast, 
And I, I, for some reason, the fact that it's set in the 70s makes it feel scarier to me because so many great horror movies were just made in the 70s. Yeah, that worked for me. And I thought actually the it had just the perfect amount of star power where it has some uh, recognizable character actors. Uh, Lily Taylor. Um, Ron Livingston. Ron Livingston. Um, yeah, Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga play the Warrens. They're a high enough level that they're obviously professional actors, mm-hmm. but they're not like... I mean, I think one of the first movies I reviewed had Harrison Ford, and I just couldn't see him as anybody but Indiana Jones, right? right? Like, it's none of this, these A-list celebrities that you're either the killer or... You're there for a reason, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that one of my issues is the fact that, like, why did they really necessarily have to pretend that this was based on a true story? I mean, I have a personal axe to grind. I'm a little bit of a skeptical person because I used to be a very, much, very much a believer. You know, I used to be Mulder, and I'm I've sort of eclipsed over to Scully in a lot of oh, ways. Oh, incidentally, sorry to interrupt. Go one ahead. of the things that I thought was really strong about this movie was there was no Scully character. Not one. Right, the, the house is obviously haunted, and we don't have Ron Livingston saying, "I don't believe in ghosts," yeah. even though I just saw this horrible apparat, uh, apparition come out of the mirror or something. There's like no that. shrink who thinks that she's psychotic and abusing the children. There's none of that <laughs> side, and that's a very familiar, revisited thing too. In fact, uh, keep listening; it might come up <laughs> it, in one of our later just reviews. Might. It just might. But what I wanted to say about the Warrens is that I, I think that this movie almost. Well, they're, they're heroes. Like they're these these guys are going to be the center of this Conjuring franchise. And uh, I mean, I think if anybody looks into them a little bit, the fact that you can go to their haunted museum and and take a tour and see the Annabelle doll for whatever fifty bucks a ticket, you know, <laughs> uh, the fact that the woman who you know who said that this place was haunted has just published thousands and thousands of pages of rambling craziness that is inconsistent and like just obviously not <laughs> not something written by somebody who's got all of the pieces to the puzzle, you know? It doesn't have to be based on a true story. And the fact that they're hanging it on it sort of, in a way, rubs me the wrong way. I would rather this was just another spooky sort of uh, ghost story that they decided, yeah, let's use that 70s aesthetic to our favor, you know? I just wish that it wasn't based on a true story because, let's be real, it, it fucking isn't. It's a, it's a horror movie. It's a story. Well, That's why we like it, because it's fantasy. Well, and speaking of overused tropes, based on a true story, um, it feels like somebody got that in their head once, that that would make a movie scarier. It doesn't matter if it's based on a true story or not. It shouldn't um, play into it. But I mean, if, if it's scary, it's scary. If it's not, it's not. But but I can't sleep at night knowing that the legend of Hell House could be true, Matthew. <laughs> yeah, there's a possibility. <laughs> anyway, I mean... I like The Conjuring, but I think I like it less than everybody else uh, does. I mean, it's it's good. It's solid. It's like it's a worthy horror movie watch. But I mean, I, I'm not going to compare it with The Exorcist. I'm not going to get too out of hand, you know. But when, like uh, again, I come back to when it works, it works. So I mentioned already um, the little girl's reaction to what her sister sees in the dark. There's also that really horrifying game of blind man's bluff oh, that the they're clapping playing. Game is wonderful. And that happens twice, and both of the times the payoff is really is really strong. Um, and I mean, you know what it's going to be. They they moved into this haunted house, and one of them has a blindfold on, and they're trying to um, find whoever is playing with them. And 
the people that are playing can just clap and they sort of walk around the house trying to find them. And you know at one point something's going to be clapping that isn't one of them and something really scary is going to happen. And even knowing it, the way they execute it uh, with that little kid jumping out of the darkness and clapping his hands, like that was, even seeing it coming a mile away, uh, it really got me. It's chilling. It's chilling. And I think that is James Wan's kind of gift. He like, I've said it before, he, we know exactly how he's going to scare us, and yet he scares us. And I think that's, like, uh, that's definitely a talented filmmaker. Yeah. Lily Taylor in the basement for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> they they kind of spoiled that scare in the trailer, but it's still just an amazing, amazing moment. And again, all of this stuff happens in the first 40 minutes. And I think that that is where the strength of the movie is and what makes it a totally worthy watch. It's on the wall. I've seen it a few times. I will see it more. You know, I, I like it. I endorse yeah. it. But um, a lot of people would sort of like it was it was a revitalization of horror. It was this decades horror masterpiece. I'm hoping that we haven't yet seen it. You know, <laughs> I'm hoping yeah. that that horror masterpiece is still out there waiting for me. Well, and it did have, like, towards the end, you, you already mentioned that there was um, an overly familiar exorcism. What you didn't mention it also is how cloyingly sweet it was, that there was this photograph when the family had been on vacation and mm -hmm. were treated to these, like, very saccharine flashbacks. And, oh, that was the perfect day. We stopped at the coast and we were all so happy. And then the exorcist is like, remember that day. Remember how happy you were. And then there's this stupid music and we see that stupid day at the beach again. And that certainly didn't belong in there for me. And it was kind of indicative of when the movie overdid it. It overdid it in kind of ugly ways. Hmm. But it didn't spoil the meal. I would still, I would still recommend it. Yeah, I would, I would say it was well worth my time. Um, it's a good one to watch with people that are scared easily because it's <laughs> fun to watch their expressions as well. Um, when it works, it really works well, which is something uh, that can't necessarily be said. Certainly not of all the movies I re reviewed uh, on your podcast, but not even all of the movies from this week. Yeah. And as a jump scare factory, I mean, like, it made me jump. I mean, <laughs> I'm pretty inured to them. And like I said, I can see them coming, but I still jump. So kudos for that. During afternoon tea, there's a shift in the air. A bone-trembling chill that tells you she's there. There are those who believe the whole town is cursed, but the house in the marsh is by far the worst. What she wants is unknown, but she always comes back. The spectrum of darkness. The woman in black. Okay, so before we get into The Woman in Black, I've got to admit some personal baggage that I'm going to be bringing into this. You have uh, a crush on Harry Potter. I totally am in love with Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> no, that's, that, that's actually not the case. But I am kind of in love with the source material of this. 
I am familiar with the, the, the novel, which was published in 1983, but is a very sort of throwback gothic ghost story because uh, I saw a stage play of it performed actually by good friends of mine that told sort of the base story. And it rang familiar to me because I remembered as a kid seeing this BBC production of a movie. I didn't remember then that it was The Woman in Black, but it was very much this story. I keep on running in to The Woman in Black, which, if you know the context of the story, is actually super fucking creepy. <laughs> but uh, it's weird because this is the most conventional of ghost movies in a lot of ways. Like, there's a jump scare involving birds early on, and I'm like, damn it! You know? And... Uh, yeah, it's centered around yeah, Daniel Radcliffe, who's trying to prove to the world that he's more than just Harry Potter, right? Uh, and I, I feel sort of, again, like we talked about in The Conjuring, a lot of very familiar tropes throughout this movie. But I also still found it quite frightening. <laughs> so uh, I thought this might be one that we would disagree on, because as it turns out, despite my... <laughs> you know, obvious an obvious flaws that I see present in the movie. I'm actually quite a fan of the Woman in Black. I think I'm probably less of a fan of it than you are, um, but I did think it was quite good. Uh, similar, I suppose, to The Conjuring, there were a lot of familiar tropes, as you've already said. In some ways, um, it gets some of them get handled with a bit more of a light touch. For example, we've got the second movie uh, in a row that begins with little kids playing with creepy dolls. Mm -hmm. But this time we actually have creepy dolls that look creepy. That those kind of... dolls, all of the toys in this movie, just, they could have just done a, a series of shots of those fucking toys and it would be a creepy movie. Damn. <laughs> But yeah, the, but you were saying, yeah, it, we, we open basically with three children committing suicide. Yeah. That's where we start. And in a really surreal way, they're all having a tea party, and then they seem to be, I mean, all little girls are creepy, obviously, but they just seem to be no creepier than three little girls having a tea party would be in any other situation. And then they all just stand up and walk out the window, or walk towards the window and jump out the window. Yeah. And then we hear a parent screaming in the background, and that's how the movie starts. And uh, that's when we get into this really creepy sort of ghosty curse that goes on. I think part of my the thing about this movie is that it does target children. Maybe that hits sort of a soft spot for me. The the curse of this evil spirit, and depending on what interpretation you see you see of this, um, if you see her, it means a child's going to die, or necessarily uh, in some interpretations that your child is going to die, just by seeing this vision of this this awful woman in this black funeral garb. Um, and, uh, it's, it's a creepy idea. And, uh, I don't know if I feel, we'll get to the ending. I don't feel if I like the extent that we went to it in this version of the events. I think in the original BBC teleplay version that I saw, it ends just with him seeing the woman in black and her pointing at him and screaming. And we just know what it means. And that I actually was didn't mind the way this ended. It had a little bit of a twist, um, as ghost movies are wont to do. Um, quite a few of the ghost movies we watched for this have pretty familiar fake-out endings. Mm -hmm. um, Conjuring, of course, we'll get into some of the other ones. Um, this one, I actually liked it. We can Well, let's talk about the plot first, and then we can talk okay. about how it ends. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe is a very young lawyer who has recently lost his wife and is 
not dealing with it well. And he has a young son that uh, he's sort of his little neglectorino <laughs> right now <laughs> as we start him. And uh, he is sent to help settle the affairs of this estate in this creepy as shit Eel Marsh house. A uh, house that actually gets enclosed by the tidal flow uh, every evening. So if you get too scared of the woman in black, you don't have the option of flight. <laughs> you're, you're locked in by the environment. Um, and yeah, he has to spend his days in this sort of musty house full of, you know, dead people's furniture and uh, go through all of the paperwork and finances and sort out the estate. And whilst looking into that, stumbles upon the woman in black and the mystery surrounding her. And, and we also have a lot of kids killing themselves. This, and the town with... folks, just generally, that, with the exception of Kieran Hines, who's a really good uh, Irish actor, uh... The townsfolk are just immediately not a fan of him, his presence. They don't like him. They don't like him around. He just means bad news. And they seem to be right because, yeah, calamity has followed his arrival. So that's the basic sort of setup plot of, of The Woman in Black. I think almost all of the movies from this podcast also involve a protagonist that is fallen on hard times financially mm -hmm. um he needs to be doing what is he doing exactly with her estate uh well they're just trying to settle the estate there's nobody in possession of the house or anything like that so he's sort of basically collecting the documents and sorting things out uh trying to figure out if there is a distant relative to contact or what what to do with it right and he's in a situation where he's got to sort it well and quickly or else he loses his job so yeah. he's got that he has to um, prove financial desperation yeah um it's it's weird because it, it confronts you with a lot of scenes that would be frustrating where people will yell at the movie screen where you, you know a character hears a noise in the middle of the night that is inexplicable and then goes and very slowly investigates <laughs> it, you know? And it should just be intensely frustrating. And I don't know if it's just the context and the production values, because that house just... I'm not, like I said, I'm a skeptical person, and I wouldn't want to sleep in that house, man. <laughs> no, I, the, the, I mean, the scenery does, or the setting does so much of the work for this movie. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't even do it in a shitty way where it becomes overly reliant on it as... Um, might happen in Rose Red later. Maybe. Uh, it's, it's good. It's the right kind of house with the right kind of creaks and just enough scary stuff to keep the tension up. Um, the, I mean, it's the kind of house where obviously there should be a ghost when the marsh floods the roads out and you're just stuck there. Yeah. They don't even um, bother putting that in the real estate advertisement. It's just understood. Yeah, evil spirit <laughs> yeah. within. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> And that's why you buy that house. <laughs> yeah. I didn't actually like the movie quite as much as you, it sounds like, though. Right. Uh, I had a big problem with the protagonist, who his wife is dead, and he just walks around mopey all the time, and there's he sees his little precocious kid's drawing of him, and it's like you know a stick figure with a big frowny face. And like, right. oh, daddy, that's you. You're always so sad, daddy. <laughs> and then... Harry Potter walks around, oh, I'm so sad, everything's so mopey, <laughs> and, like, I, I, so when he's in the house by himself, and we don't know what's going on, and the ghost might kill him, like, I don't really mind that, he's becoming such an annoying presence, <laughs> um, the, the supporting character, what did you say his name was? Kieran Hines. 
He's uh, the one friendly... He and his wife are like the two friendly people in town as far as we can see. <laughs> yeah, he's a guy that I could latch on to, you know, an hour and a half into the movie when they finally introduce him. Another thing is, I, I think... You could say that the pacing is slow to build up suspense. I actually think the pacing is a little bit off, especially at first. I find it takes it takes too long to really get into it, and you don't have a character to latch onto. So, I, I mean, I, I mentioned that I don't think they're coasting off of the fact that the setting is so spooky. I think they are coasting off of the fact that they've got Daniel Radcliffe and they just assume that because he's the protagonist we will care what happens to him but I really he doesn't sell the character at all to me he is very 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 young looking there's a little bit of a like a Leonardo DiCaprio thing that I feel with him and that I don't think he's a bad actor but he's always got this quality where he kind of looks like a kid to me and, and yeah I didn't mind that so much I mean he was old enough to have a son that age it's early 20th century they were popping oh, yeah. up pretty young by the young. time you're in your early 20s you've lived a long hard life in a lot of respects <laughs> that's sort of like the whole cowboy world where like uh, I don't mind seeing baby face cowboys because a lot of them you know were uh, but yeah. I, I, I understand that, that that it wasn't unheard of to have somebody so young have such a large responsibility I think the problem of Radcliffe's casting is, unfortunately, and this would really irritate him, the fact that he is Harry Potter to so many people. That it's it's just an out for the movie. I think that, you know, give this movie ten years and when people just don't care about Harry, Harry Potter as much or Daniel Radcliffe as much, and he's just another protagonist in a ghost movie, he fits that template role. It's so many see, horror I, movies, I so many horror because... movies start with somebody's having a terrible tragedy in their life and they're in a terrible place and this supernatural adventure uh sort of is is is, is set on, on on that precipice right so many movies some some child has died some wife has died and we meet the widow and they're already in a down place when the supernatural strikes it's it, it, it may be a flaw but it, it's just it's a it's an almost a horror movie archetype <laughs> I, and I don't mind that so much. I I don't necessarily agree with what you're saying about having to see him as Harry Potter because I haven't actually seen any of the Harry Potter movies, so I didn't. You were still distracted I mean, I, by him. Generally. Obviously, well, I know that he is Harry Potter, but I could let that go. Um, but yeah, he was just too mopey and too droopy. So it, it it would even be possible to keep starting with a little bit of desperation as far as your job goes or your finances that's very common we're going to see it again and again that's okay um a traumatic loss of a loved one that's fine because ghost movies are psychological they're so often about loss or something being missing from your life that's about okay death. yeah but he he was just so droopy dog that after a while it was hard to for me to really sympathize identify with him at all well, the I think the, I thought the thing that would be the ah fuck moment for you was the ending. He solves the murder mystery or, or the mystery of the curse, or so he thinks, and he's reunited with his son, and he's happy to see his son, and he hugs his son, and everything's going to be a okay. But no, his son is lured onto the train tracks, and he runs to save him, and they're hit by the train, and it was all for naught, right? He's re like, I guess he was right to mope around, because he just wasn't going to be <laughs> happy until he got uh, his wife back. And the fact that the movie frames a happy ending around a child and his father being run over by a train is, is, is more optimistic than, <laughs> than I think it is. No, I liked worse. it. I thought that was something that I hadn't seen before, and I 
Well, I wasn't entirely sure how to read it, so I'm, I'm curious to get your opinion. But he, so the woman in black, her child had died and he sort of reunited their corpses and buried them together. And so now they can be together in the afterlife. And then, yeah, his kid's at the train station, wanders onto the tracks. He follows his kid onto the tracks. They both get hit by a train. And then they get reunited with his wife all together in the afterlife. And it felt to me like that was a weird thank you from the woman in black. She didn't keep them was... there. She wasn't, she, they wasn't trapped there or wasn't part of that curse. They were sort of, I guess, free to go. And I guess she was giving Daniel Radcliffe what he wanted. He gave her her family back, so she gave him his family back. Yeah, it seemed like oddly magnanimous and sort of like... like uh, I mean, if you're an evil ghost that's and you want to do something nice, like, yeah. how do you say thank you? It's like when my cat brings me a dead rabbit or something. I don't necessarily want the rabbit, but, you know, he thinks that that's a nice thing. I kind of felt like... It's the thought that the, counts. Yeah. <laughs> but then the last shot was the woman in black being very menacing. So then I wasn't sure, is she evil and did she accidentally do him a favor? Uh, they were reopening was... the Hammer Horror Studios for this and they wanted maybe to franchise it. Hence, perhaps yeah, someday because us, there is a sequel. Perhaps someday us talking about Woman in Black too. <laughs> yes. Uh, the one thing I wanted to mention quickly, because we're pretty deep into this and we haven't, is the jump scares in the movie. Okay. Because I think there's some fucking good ones. <laughs> and again, much like the, with The Conjuring, they shouldn't work. Him looking through that little uh, ornament chime jewelry box thing <laughs> and uh, her appearing in a vision behind him and just... I thought some of the jump scares in the house genuinely worked, and uh, I just wanted to throw a few points up in its favor. I know I come in a little bit biased because I love the source material and I love you know seeing the play and, and you know I have my own personal baggage. I I, I came in liking it. I probably was going to give it a C minus <laughs> sight unseen almost because I just I, I like this sort of type of story. But as I say it, I know it's a very very familiar one. Oh, it's a great act. Carolea creates the fire in you. You made this happen. You made her talk about him. You made her remember him. He was lost. Can you feel the cold? He's devouring the heat. The energy. I'm going to count to three, Carolea. And when I snap my fingers, you will awaken. One, two, three. My memory of Poltergeist 3, even from when it came out and me being a fan of the franchise, was that I hated it. That's where I start. When I revisited the movie, it came in a package with part two. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't come in with any kind of expectation but to be basically making fun of the thing. And I don't have a lot of positive things to say. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. But well, I've got I've got something positive to say. Uh, maybe a little bit of a Dutch compliment here, but I don't think it was the worst Poltergeist movie I've seen. Uh, I do think it was better than Poltergeist Two. Wow. Well, no. Okay, I liked it more than I liked Poltergeist Two. Well, the reason we like it is probably more accidental than on purpose, though. Is is I think what we're getting at, right? Well. One of the things that I thought that captured my imagination about it a little bit when I was younger, uh, I didn't see it until I was in my maybe mid-teenage years, 
Uh, it takes place in a building where Tom Skerritt is a building manager and the kids, uh, a young Laura Flynn Boyle, although because she was she had 80s hair and makeup, she actually looked kind of older than she did subsequently. <laughs> Weird. Because uh, everybody in the 80s looked old. Um, but her and Carol Ann running around the building, uh, I liked the idea of having the freedom to have that whole space be a space that you could run around in. So like when the kids, uh, the parents are at a party and the kids break into the swimming pool and they're, they've just got the run of the place. I, I liked that as a premise. Mm-hmm. Um, it seemed like it would be a fun thing. Kind of like, and this is, I'm not going to compare it to Dawn of the Dead in too many ways, but the same <laughs> as having freedom of running around and having a mall all to yourself, having the apartment building all to yourself always seemed like it would be fun to me. Yeah. There's a sequence when Lara Flynn Boyle gets her can to the keys to the kingdom and she can basically access anything, the stores, the swimming pool, the whatever. Um, the premise is actually one of the problems. <laughs> Carol Ann is ex- inexplicably uh, farmed off to her aunt, who doesn't seem that fond of her, frankly. <laughs> and uh, well, she's going to the school for gifted children. Uh, so the rest of the family is completely absent the from aunt- the movie. Sorry to interrupt. Weirdly, the aunt seems to like her more at the beginning, but then at about the halfway point, seems to not love her anymore, yeah. uh, which becomes a major plot point. And I think they had to uh, write that in or really play that up. So for the climax, she could say, you know, I will sacrifice myself for you or whatever, whatever it is whatever that she it does. So they had to, to make you it that seem- I love you. Yeah. yeah, and they had to make that seem like it had stakes, but it didn't make sense because when we're first introduced to this family, they seem to really be into each other and they all love each other. So it's a um, weird when she misstep starts... of the show. Like, it should have been awkward. I think that she should have been having a weird icy relationship right across the board. Maybe that would have helped it. But basically, the villain from part two returns, even though the actor who played him is now dead, and it's clearly just a boogeyman wearing a boogeyman mask at this point. <laughs> to uh, claim Carol Ann and, and, you know, get her to lead them to the other side. The poltergeists are back. I'm with you in that I like the idea of moving it up to a, a, a high-rise building. My grandparents, when I was a kid, lived in a high-rise apartment building, which I did spend a lot of time running around in being a little brat. But there is something creepy about the fact that it's a hive. It's kind of a weird used place, and there's ghostly howls from the elevator shaft and the stairwells. And, they, like, I think that it's kind of an untapped potential for for creepy i don't know that they made it creepy i think that this is a little bit so it's so 80s and pastel and pretty and mall like that i didn't get much atmosphere i got when they were trying for atmosphere i kind of liked some of the business with the mirrors and the supernatural stuff going in in the background that initially our characters don't even notice but i i just like things that they're trying but i just don't think it's very successful at doing any of it but I was no, surprised the, when I was watching execution it execution wasn't good in almost anything that they tried to do. But I, I found myself just sort of, in a weird way, like not liking it, but rooting for them while I was watching the movie. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. I mean, this is not a positive review. And it's just, uh, <laughs> there's a bunch of interesting ideas here, and they were, they were taking swings. I just don't think they were getting too many hits. <laughs> 
Well, and Poltergeist 2 seemed in so many ways trying to rehash Poltergeist 1, and I guess this is the thing about trilogies, particularly when they were impromptu trilogies, because I think when they made the first one, they didn't think it would become a three-parter. So the second one seemed like they were just trying to redo the first one and capture that magic, which they did not. And for the third one, they tried some new things. Um, And I... I like that they tried. Uh, when you were saying like it was kind of fun to watch them run around the building and you were sort of rooting for them, it felt in some ways more like an adventure movie than a horror movie. Correct. Um, and that, you know, it was fun in its way. And um, these were... So like I said, I didn't, I didn't see it until I was in my teens, but they kept playing it on... I don't know what channel forty or something. It was just one of those movies that was on every other uh, Sunday night. So I watched it a ton of times when I was like sixteen to eighteen, and there's a certain familiarity and residual enjoyment that I kind of got from it. But if you were seeing this for the first time, you would not like it unless you kind of came in with some pre-existing emotional attachment. It's weird because it's in this strange category of family horror movies. It is a horror movie, but it's meant to be enjoyed by the whole family. So there's a certain... It has to keep a certain level of PG. It can give you some boo, but it can't give you any real violence. It can get you to the line of something really ugly, but it's not going to give you something really ugly because it's still for everyone. I think that's where I was going with that misstep of the relationship with the family. The fact that Carol Ann's family are absent, it, it almost because of the Spielbergian bond that they established... We have to assume that the rest of her family is either fucking dead <laughs> or that some horrible worm has turned where they, the, that their daughter has become such a psychic magnet for bad spiritual energy that they just fucking ponder off. <laughs> well, they, they never do a great job of explaining this, but no, I believe don't. what happens is she gets sent to Chicago to live with her aunt and her family. Um, because there's a school that they want her to go to with this psychiatrist that's good at working with creepy kids, uh, segue into the psychiatrist character. Yes. Uh, so I think it wasn't that her family didn't want her around, which is something that her aunt is going to say later that her, you know, her sister was trying to pawn Carol Anne off on her, but that was never the case. She was going to this special school, and it wasn't a special school even necessarily for kids that are troubled. It was just for kind of psychologically damaged kids, I guess. Right. I don't know. It just didn't, because of the the level of love that they'd established within the family, I just, I didn't, I didn't buy that they would just give her away and we wouldn't hear from them at all. There wouldn't even be a scene where she was on the phone with her mother. Or the fact that uh, the, the grandmother died in the previous movie, which was, you know, uh, presumably just a few months ago or not that long ago, Caroline hasn't aged that much since part two, right? So, like, her aunt doesn't seem too phased by the fact that her mother just died. And, you know, her mother was a psychic, we found out in the previous movie, so she must have some knowledge that the psychic, this ghost business exists. And there's all sorts of and problems. And it, it would have been so easy to solve, too, to give her and a problem with her, because you could say, like, the grandmother 
and then Carol Ann's mother were both psychics in the last one. So you could say they had a special bond that the younger sister always felt left out of. So she might have a little bit of residual bitterness or something. Like, it wouldn't have taken any time just to do something like that. But they just didn't bother. They were just, like, hoping, just just, just let us go. We have Carol Ann, that's all we need. The rest of the family, whatever. They died in a car or whatever. And, uh... <laughs> nope. I, and that's the thing. They they tried to keep the vibe at first of this is still that lovey-dovey family. And that worked against the story they were trying to tell. There should have been tension, and there wasn't. <laughs> and we're going to, speaking of lovey-dovey family, okay. uh, segue into something that I, I was watching this with a friend, and I didn't pick up on it, but then she picked up on it, and when she mentioned it, I couldn't stop noticing okay. how often Tom Skerritt was kissing Laura Flynn Boyle on the mouth. Like, really? So he was supposed to be her dad, right. and she was his 17-year-old daughter, but there was a lot of mouth kissing. And, like, their <laughs> mouths were closed, but still, it was getting to be the point where this doesn't feel right to me. Whoa, daddy. Yeah, this family maybe seems well, a little bit too lovey-dovey in ways and not lovey-dovey enough in others. I will say this. I didn't notice it, and I'm not going to watch the movie again to see if I was right or wrong, because it's just not going to be worth my time to go well, three. You can take my word for it. There I will is, take your word for it. Um, Laura Flynn Boyle, the older sister, worst fucking babysitter ever. <laughs> <laughs> just utter child neglect to the left and right. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't mind that so much. So, uh, Carol Ann, she has to take care of Carol Ann while the parents are downstairs at a party, but she wants to go to her friend's party, so she leaves she Carol Ann on her own, <laughs> and Carol Ann's like, no, go to the party, I, whatever, I'm, I'm, I'm 10, good. I can sit alone in a hotel room by myself, and I actually didn't think there was a big problem with that, that's the kind of thing... The kind of irresponsible teenage behavior that you should expect from teenagers and right. sure ground them for a week or so when they like, do it, but don't be surprised. It's like yelling at a toddler for pissing his pants. It's, you know, yeah. it's going to happen. It's going to yeah. happen. <laughs> I get that. And it's not like she left her alone in a house in the, or a cabin in the middle of the woods or something. You know, they were all in the same building and they didn't know that there was a ghost. So shouldn't have been a big problem. Uh, anyway, this uh, psychiatrist character who's supposedly, you know, here to help Carol Ann and is, like, <laughs> just such a preposterous skeptical character. <laughs> He's uh, one of the two really preposterous skeptics that we're going to encounter in these films. And he is so hostile towards her. He hates her so much. She hasn't even done anything to him. And he's just talking about how manipulative and awful this little girl is and when things happen like she uses her psychic powers to throw a coffee cup at a glass and break it in front of witnesses and he's like this was uh, hypnotic an example suggestion. of the kind of mass hypnosis that this little rapscallion is so excellent at <laughs> absolutely like, no evidence could be presented to this man <laughs> that would convince this uh, that there was anything supernatural happening even to the point of his death I'm sure he fell down that elevator shaft smugly certain he was correct <laughs> the whole time mass hypnosis knee <laughs> off this elevator shaft will you <laughs> but yeah like there, he, there were visitors to this school uh, watching Carol Ann behind one-way glass and she literally psychics a coffee cup at the glass which shatters and he's like no it's hypnosis yeah <laughs> what part of that is hypnosis uh, I want to give the movie credit for for one kind of cool moment I thought 
Uh, Tangina returns from the uh, previous films, the strange, squeaky voice to... Member of the Lollipop Guild that uh, Ooh, helps fight I, another the Another thing I noticed, although she is not the mother of Yeardley Smith, she could easily be the mother of Yeardley Smith, <laughs> <Yes>. Lisa Simpson. <laughs> she seems to really enjoy being this uh, powerful figure and walking around with her chin up and being very smug. And uh, she loves Carol Ann and she's going to come rescue her. So uh, I thought it was kind of cool that she had a very sudden death and that. Weirdly, Laura Flynn Boyle's character suddenly erupted and emerged from her corpse. Yeah, I like, forgot that about that. That was a fucking Although... weird moment, but like I did not see that coming. <laughs> and uh, it was both it was shocking a because Tangina was suddenly out of the picture and then b that I didn't see this sudden emergence happening. So I will give the movie points for that. There don't seem to be any rules in this universe. We don't <laughs> really know what it is that these ghosts are capable of or even what what things can happen in this universe. So I wasn't all that thrown by it because the ghosts just seem to do... Whatever. <laughs> yeah, they're not even necessarily haunting ghosts. Like, all the whole building turns to ice and then the boyfriend emerges out of the ice in a really hilariously overacted scene. Yep. And then he's fine, but then he's evil with Laura Flynn Boyle. That was a weird, un, sort of untethered moment of this story too. I thought it was kind of interesting that uh, you know they get Laura Flynn Boyle back, they get her boyfriend back, but no, they're not back. They're evil. We see their they sort of get into the mirror and walk away with this mischievous grin. Like, like uh, if that was the last we'd seen of Laura Flynn Boyle, I would have said that that was kind of ballsy. But no, she comes back and she's rescued and she's fine. Her boyfriend, however, gone from the movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> he's still evil and trapped in the mirrors. I'm gonna guess it's just. We've already thought way more about this movie than anybody involved in writing it did, is my guess. Uh, so we're almost 15 minutes into this. Uh, is there anything <laughs> that we want to say more about Poltergeist 3? In, in, in the interest of voicing an unpopular opinion, I know that the actress who played Carol Ann died shortly after this. I just think she's in maybe me mediocre to okay child actress. <laughs> There's just something so saccharine about her delivery and her perfectly, you know, pinched cabbage patch doll cheeks that is just like I don't know it's almost you know how you talked about Annabelle the evil doll being the perfect evil doll in a way she's the perfect mm. precocious cute little blonde child right well I'm gonna make you feel like an asshole here Larry okay. um or lay bare the fact that you are an asshole. The reason why she looked like a Cabbage Patch doll is she was having health problems that they thought was Crohn's disease. She was all puffed up on steroids, um, but it was a misdiagnosis. So the thing that she actually had killed herself or killed her. Um, so she was quite sick during the filming of this, and she was on a lot of medication that was making her look a little bit puffier. Um, well, look puffy, but also she just seemed a little bit off and it's because she was sort of dying when they were filming this so i hope you feel bad about yourself well i think that's probably a good way to end this review well here you go that's where you've been spending most of your time the company wants us to patrol the premises every couple of hours the mirrors they're so clean well he was working here before you he was completely obsessed with these mirrors
Anybody here? So Alexandre Aja, um, French director, sort of specializes in, in the horror genre. And I think he's a very technically good director. Uh, for me, it's just all the script. You know, if he has a good script on his back, he's going to probably deliver the goods. So it's, it's not a guarantee with him, but I'm always going to check out the next Alexandre Aja film. This movie mirrors starring Kiefer Sutherland as a night security guard who gets... Uh, well, an ex-cop, come night security guard, which we can get into, who comes to look after this uh, burnt-out, very haunted department store, which has weird supernatural shenanigans going on in the mirrors, unsur unsurprisingly. Uh, it's a remake of a film called Into the Mirror from South Korea, but it doesn't really follow the story. It just sort of steals sort of set pieces from the original film. And I'm going to... I'm going to guess. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I haven't seen the source material, but I'm betting that the source movie was really good because it feels like there are just glimmers of greatness that this that Alexander Aja seems to be trying really hard to suppress. There there are some really interesting things about this movie that I think is handled ultimately kind of heavy-handed and over-directed in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, it's the thing. I mean, it's a movie that I want to like. <laughs> That's where I come into <laughs> it, right? Uh, and it keeps on trying my patience. I think it starts pretty strong. There's a fairly shocking uh, murder-slash-suicide scene, depending on how you choose to inter interpret things, uh, that sort of starts things off and sets you into, like, this is going to be a hard, brutal, R-rated movie. But the, the story it's telling is another one of these PG-standard ghost stories, you know? find the root of this evil, bring person A to point B, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get to the other side of it. But uh, it's got all of these very hard R-rated set pieces. And it's mm. also just way too long. It's two hours long. And I think that if they'd somehow managed to squeeze a half an hour out of it, that I'd be here saying, yes, see mirrors. Right now I'm just sitting here saying, well, I want to be saying that I really like mirrors. <laughs> Yeah, there were some there were some good bits in mirrors, but I think ultimately um, some of it was too familiar, and some of it became ridiculous. The ending of this became it just completely fell apart at the ending. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, but there were there were also like the standard horror movie or, or ghost movie tropes which again i don't think is so bad it starts off with a character that it he sort of fell from grace as a cop there was a shooting and he became an alcoholic and he needed he was trying to get his life back together so he's working in this haunted um, what department was a department store. store. It had had a fire um, five years previously and they were slowly renovating to reopen and he had to yeah. keep the lights burning at night. <laughs> but there's questions like, um, 
So why does he stay here? This is where the uh, financial desperation can be a useless tool for these kind of useful tool for these kind of stories. Uh, there's a point where he's he's like, this place is scary as shit, and his sister's like, well, why don't you just get a better job? And he says, quote, it's not that simple, and then that's the end. Yeah. Like, it is exactly that simple. You can get paid that much working at Starbucks. Like, <laughs> the ham-fisted screenwriter wants him to be there because he has to, but it's just like, it's not that simple. Don't worry about it. Why, why do you stay there? Ah, don't worry about it. Well, here's, um, I'm not really arguing the point, but here's what I would say if I had written this movie, why I would say he stays there. Well, A, because we needed him to stay there. But uh, people who were, had positions of authority or power tend to like that. So cops who are no longer cops, you know, tend to become security guards because they can pretend they still carry that measure of some uh, imagined authority, right? Uh, it, it's sort of. And if they kept that, that would have added an interesting dimension to his character but because we don't then see he wouldn't that. have been the completely selfless heroic dad. Yeah. He could be on a bit of a power trip. But they, they just don't bother, right? Yeah. They just say it's not that simple. I think you're right. I think that the secret to this might be if maybe he wasn't a perfect man and maybe if he was in a prison of his own making in a lot of ways, you know, <laughs> uh, that, you know, in a way he sort of at least somewhat redeems himself by solving this very industry standard ghost puzzle. Where I will give the recommendation. But we don't even really know what he's redeeming himself from. Well, Sorry, it's not really cleared in the me. background. I, I just wanted to say some positive stuff about the movie because I feel like I'm giving this an F, and a, I don't think it's an entire catastrophe. <laughs> it's there are some cool moments to it. Uh, most famously, it'd be Amy Smart's death sequence. Uh, yeah, that was one of my favorite moments from any of these movies. Right. Uh, do you want to do you want to sure. say what it well, is? We we sort of understand that uh, if you see a glitch in the mirror, if you know your reflection doesn't match you, if you notice something bad about the mirror, that that means something bad could be happening to you. You've sort of opened yourself up to this evil force. So Amy Smart's getting ready to have a a bath, and she glances at herself in the mirror and then turns away, and her reflection stays. And we follow her as she gets into the tub and sits down to relax and have a soap a soak, and her reflection in the mirror opens her mouth, grabs her lower jaw, and just starts pulling and pulling. And we see Amy Smart receiving the injury as she tries to relax in this tub. And it's really shocking and very violent. And it's a really horrifying... Like, what could she possibly make of this situation? Yeah, her like, what jaw was just happening gets to her? ripped apart. <laughs> and and she, she, it's, it's obviously... Like, she's selling it so horrifying, so painful, and there's just nothing she can do. And I would was half expecting when that scene was over she'd just be lying dead in the bath and some of that was an illusion in her head no nope. <laughs> uh, but no her jaw is just ripped off and it, it's a gut-wrenching moment and she's she's a character that we like too it's heartbreaking and she dies ignobly and really quickly yeah like quickly ish in the movie um it just seems like there's more for her to do and she's just plucked too soon well, and that's the kind of thing that I like. I like when a movie gives us a character that we like so that we feel that. We get impact from the death, you know, mm -hmm. a, a wash death, for the lack of a better word, you know. <laughs> when, when something bad happens to him, we're like, oh, fuck, that sucks, you know, as opposed to it's just another random asshole who gets, you know, wiped off of the screen. And I do think that was a very, very strong sequence, like a very strong sequence in the middle of a not very strong movie. <laughs> 
Yeah. The other one that I thought was pretty good was when uh, Kiefer Sutherland is using his cop connections to look at the corpse of the previous security guard. who uh, He had died uh, looking in the first scene. He looks in the mirror, and he's, his reflection stabs him in the throat with a piece of glass. Um, and then in real life, the guy dies. Kiefer Sutherland looks at his corpse um, in the mortuary, and there's... A predictable jump scare, but kind of like The Conjuring and kind of like Woman in Black, it's a predictable jump scare that works. Like, right. you, you know something is going to happen. It's not even all that remarkable what happens, but for me it just worked. Yeah. Uh, in a movie where I didn't think a lot of things worked. So, yeah, I found with Mirrors personally, the deeper we got into it and the more it involved Kiefer Sutherland's son and the more we got into this sort of conventional murder mystery or, or ghost mystery where he has to forcibly bring this woman who may or may not be the origin of all of this evil back to the store, the deeper into the movie, the more conventional and less interesting it became, was basically yeah. what I was trying to say there. <laughs> yeah, until it degenerated into an action movie at the end. Like, kind of, not out of nowhere exactly, but when he brings this nun um, who was possessed, I didn't quite fully understand uh, how she fit in, but when she was a little girl, there was a demon in that place, because it used to be a mental hospital, and it haunted her. Um, can you... Can you explain that better? Why <laughs> she believed, well, she saw the evil in the mirror and tried to escape it. She's in a convent where they don't allow mirrors. All the mirrors are covered and painted over. Similar uh, sort of attempt that uh, Kiefer Sutherland makes to protect his son, where he and his ex-wife paint all the mirrors in the house, so, as right. if you could possibly cover every reflective surface. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I got that, but the part that I was confused about was what made her so special. <laughs> I, I think, again, I, I'm just pie in the sky here. Maybe she was the initial person that was this evil was revealed to. I, again, it's not really clear to me in the film itself. Um, but she was possessed by the evil and got away. And I guess the thought was that maybe either giving the evil what it wants or bringing this you know, curse back to its very beginning would somehow bring it all to an end. Um, it, he was pretty desperate at that point. Like, he was trying to protect his son, so I guess I'll give him points for just trying something, because what do you do? What could you possibly do to fight against something like this? But Yeah, and two, uh, two things that that leads to. One, a charming, but sort of silly, memorable moment where Kiefer Sutherland pulls a gun on the nun to yeah. make her come back. Um, I think... Maybe the movie Free Jack with Emilio Estevez is the only movie, other movie I can recall where somebody pulls a gun on a nun. Uh, and then the other thing is when a bunch of convoluted stuff happens and he gets the nun back to the mirror factory that used to be a mental hospital and the nun gets possessed and then starts chasing him around, it becomes a really silly action movie where he's like, like it just becomes a totally different movie. Anything that might have made it creepy goes away. Uh, at one point, he picks her up and stabs her on a broken steam pipe, and yeah. steam comes out of her, which was notable because that's how Arnold Schwarzenegger kills the bad guy in the movie Commando, yeah. and it really wouldn't be out of place if the movie that this has now become if Kiefer Sutherland said, let off some steam. <laughs> yeah, and that's unfortunate because I think it started stronger than that anyway. I'm not saying that this was going to be an amazing movie, but I think it was a movie that was full of potential. Mm -hmm. um, and then, like at the the way that it ended, ended when 
the factory blows up or whatever, <clears throat> and Kiefer Sutherland comes crawling out, and then there's this slow reveal. He's looking at, at um, first a name tag and then some writing, etc., and he notices everything's backwards, like it, he's in the mirror and he's, he's not casting a reflection. Seeing the mirror image of the world now. He's sort of trapped on the other side. Yeah, that could have been a really... Could have potentially been a creepy ending or an unsettling ending, but then for some reason the director decided to make this really invasive, in, um, invasive music score. That just like okay, uh, this was going to be creepy for a second, but like the gunfight at the end, it just became loud and too much. For me, the essential failure there is that it's supposedly a devastating ending. We should be like, oh shit, over that. Like, this is crushing. This is devastating. And for me, I was just feeling that sense of relief that I knew the credits were about to roll. Now, I know that seems... I I do feel like I'm being more severe on Mirrors than I need to be. There are much worse movies than Mirrors. (laughs) But I think considering the talent involved in the premise there, it's just one of those movies that should have been better than it was. Yeah, the disappointment... And from the first scene, uh, because the first scene was good, so it sort of set the the expectations high, uh, if it hadn't started off good, it wouldn't have been so bad when it got bad, but it's like we were lied to. And uh, just a quick tangent, because uh, we probably should wrap this one up here, but uh, the role of security guards in horror movies. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, in a way, there's been only a handful that I can think of, like legit horror movies, that the main character is a security guard, uh, which seems silly because that is a real scenario that happens every day where a person is in an isolated place that is very full of scary atmosphere, which could be used for scares, I think. But typically what the night security watchman is used for is like a red shirt. Some guy who's dumb, not paying attention, and gets iced before we even know his name. (laughs) So, speaking as a night security guard, (laughs) I think this needs to be fixed. Steven, are you doing this? No. Okay, The House on Haunted Hill. Um, this film was produced by Robert Zemeckis as part of his uh, Dark Castle Entertainment project where he was going to get a bunch of young directors and a bunch of producers and basically recycle old Hollywood films and bring them updated to a modern audience. Uh, this House on Haunted Hill, I believe, was the first of those and was somewhat successful in sort of bringing an old story to a new audience. Um, I think... I guess where I what I feel about this movie generally, and we can get into the plot here right away, is that it was kind of advertised as a horror movie, and to me, it's a much lighter, funner affair. So, I mean, if you went into it saying I want to be scared, I don't know if you would like The House on Haunted Hill. But if you went into it saying I want to be entertained, I'm gonna say maybe you will. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was okay. Uh, it certainly exceeded my expectations, which were just. <laughs> rock bottom low. Right. <laughs> uh, I, it had a couple of things going against it. Uh, one of them, just personally, it was 
almost contemporary with a similar remake called The Haunting that Ugh. came out a few months later with Liam Neeson, which was just one of the worst movies. And not even one of the worst ghost movies, just one of the worst movies. Um, I think it One of the worst w- movies of the same year that saw The Phantom Menace. It could so, have been one of the worst movies of the 90s. That Haunting remake is a, just an abortion. It is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. So in my head, there was always an association between The Haunting and The House on Haunted Hill. Um, and I'm sure the only they must have been um, filmed and in post-production at the same time, and maybe there was a lag, so they wouldn't be competing with each other. I'm not sure what, but I always just assumed this would be exactly like that. Um, and so I, I I was quite sure it would be the worst movie of this list. Um, the fact that it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be, I think, made me think it was better than it is. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, because, like, there's fun stuff to talk about in this movie, but I do not want to overpraise it. <laughs> no. Um, they... I mean, a big red flag is uh, one of the stars is Saturday Night Live alumnus Chris Kattan yeah. in only a semi-comical role. Uh, <laughs> so at some points he's called upon to act. I'm not sure that he does a great job of that. Yeah, we haven't seen a lot of Chris Kattan uh, anywhere lately, have we? <laughs> um, actually, I don't think he necessarily sucked in the movie, but I think that he is really emblematic of, like, that character is supposed to be terrified and supposed to be our anchor into this horrible house, and uh, he's kind of more amusing and funny. Much like the movie it was supposed to be scary, but it's kind of more amusing and funny. Uh, The plot centers around Jeffrey Rush, who takes the role originated by Vincent Price as this uh, millionaire, eccentric con artist kind of guy who uh, invites a bunch of people to see if they can stay overnight in this very haunted house. And if they can, they get a million dollars out of the deal. (laughs) Yeah, can I actually cut in for a second? Because he's not quite a millionaire con artist. He's like an amusement park baron, if such a thing exists. He's got... um, He's famous for having the scariest amusement park rides, which often involve making it seem like things are going horribly wrong. So it looks like the roller coaster is going to go off the tracks or looks like the this high-rise elevator is breaking and people are falling to their death. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the opening scene with some reporters um, sort of filming this amusement park. A couple of the times it looks like they're going to die, which is why uh, when I... When I got into this the first time, or when I started watching it, I was so sure that there, the big reveal at the end was that there were going to be no ghosts, and this would just be a fake um, haunted house. But as it turns out, there were real ghosts in it. No, I think they had to deliver on that promise somewhat. And also, I don't know if the film would be more or less the, interesting if it had all been an illusion, but... Uh, <laughs> I think I would have found it annoying. Yeah. It would have reminded me of... I don't know what slashers or what movies are like that. There's a slasher called April Fool's Day that mm-hmm. was like that from the 80s. There, it happens from time to time where it's all one elaborate pr- prank. Happens a lot in sitcoms and stuff. Yeah. And I would have felt a little ripped off. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I think that it's interesting because the Jeffrey Rush character, like you say, is almost like a circus ringleader or something like that. He he sort of fills the role of uh, this William Castle guy who produced the original film, who was not just a, a filmmaker, but a real showman. Uh, he would do things like The Tingler, where they put electric charges in the seats of the theater to shock people while they're watching the movie. His sort of showmanship is, I think, intentionally being reflected in the Jeffrey Rush character, basically yeah. as a way to sort of pay homage to where this movie is coming from. 
And Jeffrey Rush is also doing a pretty obvious impersonation of Vincent Price. You know, Maybe a like... little less flaming, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay, I say that without judgment. Um, for the most part, I think the cast is fine. It's full of, you know, pretty people of the, uh, of the 90s era. You know, Ali Larder, Tay Diggs, very pretty people. <laughs> um, how, how good they are as actors? Well, they're not bad. They can say the lines and they don't bump into the furniture. I think the closest thing to a problematic role I find in here is uh, Famke Johansson, who plays Jeffrey Rush's wife, who's this conniving wannabe murderess who's, you know, got her own little game going on in the backdrop of all these supernatural shenanigans. At the time, she was mainly known as being um, um, a supermodel and being beautiful, and she was, but I don't think she'd quite harnessed her acting abilities yet. She's been in movies now for almost, I don't know, 15, 20 years, and I do think she's come a long way. But at this point, I think the, uh, there's a little bit of camera shyness with her for me. I didn't find it especially jarring because I thought everybody was kind of chewing the scenery a little bit. Uh, mentioned Chris Kattan already. Um, Peter Gallagher yep. was uh, her lover. And they, there was sort of their separate conspiracy plot to murder uh, Jeffrey Rush's character. Everybody just seemed to be a little bit bigger than the movie needed them to be. So... Uh, I wouldn't have necessarily guessed, uh, not knowing who she was, I wouldn't have necessarily guessed that she wasn't an actor. She just, she seemed to be hamming it up a little bit with her, I have always hated you, yeah. I'm going to take this opportunity to murder you and people will think it's the house. Mm -hmm. And this was the sort of role she was doing. She played a Bond villainess and stuff like that. She was kind of playing sinister baddies at this point, but um, I don't know, like... Uh, you're right, most of the people are playing types and they're over sort of hyping it a lot. I think they're just sort of recognizing sort of the B-movie horror history roots of this project that they're in. I also want to mention Bridget Wilson. She's not in the movie very long. She's sort of the, uh, the woman who's constantly looking through her camcorder. Um, she's unfortunately one of the first people to leave the, the, the story, but I've always thought that that actress was just gorgeous. <laughs> and... Uh, no shortage of gorgeous women in this movie. No, it's a whole movie populated by pretty people. The closest thing to normal we get is Jeffrey Rush. You know, everybody in this movie is just gorgeous. And mm -hmm. I've, I've said this in other reviews in the past, when, you know, we have a cast of eight or ten people and all of them look like they could be strutting down a runway, after a while it just does feel like they're playing dress-up to me, like I, yeah. I get distracted by it. I like to have a few pe people in there that just look like, quote, normals, just for, just throw us a bone here, people. <laughs> this is certainly not the kind of movie where you get lost in it. You no. never think, wow, this is really happening. You're always, not only are you always watching a movie, but you're always watching a very particular flavor of late 90s movie. Um, and like, as much as Poltergeist 3 was a 1980s time capsule, it's one of the most 80s-looking movies there is, this feels to me like one of the most 90s-looking movies. Um, right down to uh, starting off with Marilyn Manson, mm -hmm. uh, his Sweet Dreams song when the credit's playing, which is, like, it's all right. It's not a bad song for what it is, but it's just so 90s. Yeah. Um, and this, it has a real Scream 3 feel to it. Yeah. Well, that's for me. Like, if someone told, asked me what was the most quintessential 90s movie, I would say Scream, uh, yeah. personally. But this is definitely, yeah, in neighbors with that. But that doesn't necessarily kill it for me. In a way, you know, we're getting, we're getting old enough that 90s nostalgia is going to be a thing that's <laughs> happening legitimately. <laughs> so, which is frightening. 
Um, in the past, in this podcast, talking about ghosts, you and I have discussed a very personal pet peeve of mine, in which <laughs> if a character is killed off in a movie and later shows up again as a ghost to save the day, it super pisses me off. You Spoilers, know no, that exact thing the, happens in this movie. What's that? Oh, just you're talking about the thrilling climax with Chris Kattan, <laughs> uh, where the Chris Kattan ghost saves our two survivors looking protagonists yeah, that's right so the prettiest people win <laughs> i actually put that down though as one of the moments that i found in, in this movie which i can't quite recommend and i didn't like it exactly but i found it charming for what it was that was one of the moments that i actually didn't mind there were a couple of moments where um characters will surprise you in sort of a satisfying way mm -hmm. and so chris Kattan is like this squirrely scared guy whose family owns the house um, the, when he dies, he dies kind of distracting the ghost to in sort of this selfless act. And then when he pops up in a kind of a contrived plot, convenient way, um, but he sort of, as a ghost, does another sacrifice. And I, I, I don't know, I thought, okay, he's a, he's a decent guy. Even in the afterlife, he's yeah. more than it would seem. And that one of the reasons why I didn't find that jarring is because as much as Jeffrey Rush and his wife hated each other and were trying to kill each other throughout, when he found out that there was a ghost, even when he knew that his wife was trying to kill him and he was confronting her about it, he actually, um, I don't think he sacrificed himself, but he actually tried to save Evelyn, which yeah. I thought was this really oddly human moment. Well, and uh, one point I will give the movie is that they do establish if people die in the house that we may or may not see them or hear them again. It's not unprecedented within the realm of the story. After Famke Johansson's dead, we sort of hear her voice again through the ghosts and whatnot. So it's established. I'm just saying it's a personal pet peeve of mine. As a, as a device in any ghost movie, you're going to lose points with me if you do that. <laughs> and here it is once again rearing its ugly head. Um, I'm not enthusiastic about House on Haunted Hill, but I'm kind of glad that you're on the same page as me because I thought this was going to be another one of the reviews where I was being really embarrassed and apologetic. <laughs> it was like, yeah, I know it's silly. It is silly. Sometimes I like silly. Um, there's better silly movies than this, but there's a whole lot worse as well. This is like right in that middle ground. It's totally and completely okay. Well, and that makes it... That's of the most damning praise you could give it because yeah. really bad movies can be fun to watch because they're really bad and obviously good movies you'll want to watch but it's the kind that you should actually just probably not watch it unless you're doing your friend's podcast or something <laughs> or if no you're just bonkers for ghost movies right but i would just set the precedent that, or, or, or set the table by saying you're not going to be scared by this movie but you'll probably be entertained by it and you'll probably forget it by the next day <laughs> <laughs> or and if you're doing your ironing or something and mm -hmm. it's on TV, you could you could let it go. You could watch it. You'll probably be, you know, kind of amused by it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, there were, there was one good. I wouldn't call it a scare because there are no scares in this. I think we'll agree. <laughs> um, but when to the in the fake amusement parks that this Vincent Price character runs, uh, in the background he's got this technician that makes it look. You know, he's keeping all of the wheels in motion um and for a long time it seems like um i i keep bouncing between jeffrey rush and vincent price yeah. i'll call him 
we'll call him Jeffrey Rush, um, he for a long time thinks that these are fake tricks that he's controlling with the house. So at one point he goes back to check up on his engineer guy uh, whose face has been like carved out of his head. Yeah. Uh, I think that was quite a surprising scene. And yeah. I thought that was eh, one of the better deaths of the, I, I guess it's not a death, but we don't see it, but it's one of the better shots I thought. Yeah, there's moments. There's moments. Jeffrey Rush being thrown into that hyper-stimulating machine where he's just inundated with images and basically driven insane. Or the sequence where we see at least a vision of the Tag Diggs character jumping into this huge boiling cauldron of blood. Oh yeah, I forgot about <laughs> just, that. That was not bad. It was kind of an interesting image. I mean, it didn't pay off necessarily, but there are moments. There are moments. And, and if I you, actually if, thought that he might be dead in that scene because he was the black guy, and this was still of the era where the black guy gets killed off first. No, Matt, he was way too good looking to die. Way too <laughs> good looking to die. <laughs> and that's the kind of movie we're talking about here. So Yeah, there... and also we're talking about the kind of movie where at the end... Uh, Tay Diggs and the gorgeous blonde woman who Allie Larder. Escapes, uh, they escape through a window and they get out into the sunlight where the ghost can't get them and they're, they're at the top of this really huge Art Deco building I think it's Art Deco um, and the, he says something like uh, that's a hell of a party yeah uh, and like people just die yeah like really traumatic things just happen you yeah. don't need to have that flippant line which would have been the worst line of the movie had she not said jokingly, how do we get down from here? Which is a super legit question. Absolutely. They're at the top of the building. They're going to either die of exposure or fall. I don't know how they would get down. Two skeletons sitting next to each other perched outside of a window. That could almost be a scarier movie that just starts with them at the top of this building and what they, they think they've escaped something and now they're in a much worse situation. Now we work backwards. Houses are alive. If we're quiet, if we listen, we can hear houses breathe. We say haunted, but we mean the house has gone insane. Imagination of Stephen King comes a disturbing new epic tale. There are rumors that you're planning a scientific investigation of Rose Red this summer, a sort of psychic field trip. Is that true? For Professor Joyce Reardon. My goal is modest, a single twitch. It's time to stop the silliness. The truth is out there. When I come back from Rose Red with proof, you... It's sleaze. It's a spit-in-the-eye of rational thought. Now, she has assembled a team of gifted psychics. Hello, are, are you the group? I think we're ready. To unravel the secret... Waking up Rose Red is not a good idea. Rose Red is a dangerous place. ...that was built to last. Rose Red was built by John P. Rimbauer. What makes Rose Red... One of the world's most fascinating psychic artifacts is that after 1950, Rose Red grew on its own. Follow me and prepare to be amazed. So I have a weird fascination, and I'll even say love for Stephen King. I, I, I've, I've read a lot of his books. I couldn't say all of them because I, I have to do other things with my life. But um, <clears throat> I do consider myself a fan while acknowledging that he's sometimes problematic. But I'm a fan of him as a writer of novels and short stories. 
I do not think having Stephen King necessarily as your screenwriter is a good thing. That um, said... Maximum Overdrive? <laughs> maximum Overdrive. Uh, there's plenty of examples. That said, uh, the way some people have a weird affection for, like, I don't know, Star Trek The Next Generation, which, if we're real, just isn't a good show, or for, I don't know, some derivative 90s TV <laughs> show. <laughs> I kind of have this weird fascination for all of these made-for-TV adaptations of Stephen King that happened throughout the 90s. This Rose Red movie we're going to talk about was actually in 2002, but throughout the 90s, you were basically getting these Coles Notes PGized versions of Stephen King. They're basically making Stephen King, which is absolutely horrifying, accessible to a TV audience. And I don't know, I've always enjoyed watching them when I was, especially when they were airing, I would get really excited about them. And I have this weird affection for them, even though I know a lot of them are bad. We reviewed Sometimes They Come Back, and it was just, oh an, just an atrocious movie, an atrocious movie. But uh, for some reason, I enjoyed watching it. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. Um, so when we come to this Rose Red miniseries, which was aired over three nights, and uh, as we watch it now, that, that gets to a, almost four and a half hours of running time. Um, basically, we have Stephen King's take on... The Haunting of Hill House, basically. He's riffing on that. And he brings a huge cast of characters, and in his typical television adaptation ways, he says, TV giveth in giving him more length and more room to tell the story that he wants, but it taketh away in his ability to use the level of violence and language and sex or whatever that he would typically do. And right. so what we get here is sort of a friendlier, cuddlier Stephen King. All of this preamble leading us to the front doors of Rose Red, which is not good. <laughs> but uh, uh, that's, that's, that's where I come in. I, I come into this as a fan of Stephen King, even as a fan of his shitty TV movies, as a person who wants to like this. And I, I don't. I think you might have kind of nailed it when you were talking about your introduction with Stephen King's 90s adaptations which were just all over all over TV throughout the 90s um, Rose Red feels like it's behind its time that it should have been released five or six years earlier it it feels like a 90s movie that was made too late yeah and so it's got it's just got that 90s TV aesthetic which it doesn't work at this point yeah um, it's not scary and uh, worse than that, I think that it is a mix of borrowed elements. Stephen King is left and right stealing from either himself or from Shirley Jackson or from genuinely interesting historical things. The, you know about, uh, I believe it's the, the Winchester? Winchester House. Yeah. yeah. This woman believed that she was going to be haunted by all the people who died from Winchester rifles. But she somehow thought that they could only haunt your house if you were living in a completed house. So her house never finished construction. <laughs> uh, that's something that's borrowed in Rose Red. The opening of the movie where we have a psychic child causing a rain of rocks to fall on a house after she's been bitten by a dog is ripped right out of the pages of Carrie. Uh, this character that we have of this unbelievable mother's boy who has hidden sort of talents... Um, is Harold Lautner from The Stand, just repurposed in another story. We're seeing right. other characters ripped out of other stories and thrown into this significantly less interesting one. Yeah, one of the things that I appreciated about this for a while, and maybe I, I'm, I don't have the encyclopedic knowledge of Stephen King that you do, um, 
is it was so there's like an ensemble group of psychics in this obviously haunted house and I thought it was kind of interesting to see their dynamics play off of each other for a while so uh, this was almost four hours I watched it over the course of a night and then the next morning when I went to bed after two hours I was still kind of I didn't love it but I was still kind of into it because I thought the characters were interesting enough in their ways. Some of their dynamics were okay. Um, the the character that you're talking about, um, Emery, who is the like the nerd psychic, I thought he was overacting a little bit too much. Um, sometimes he he managed to um, reel it in a little bit, but mostly I think he was overplaying the character. Um, but he was still kind of interesting to me. I was I was curious to see where he would go if he was going to be. Uh, secretly a helpful character, secretly a hindrance, and um, one of the nice things we could say about this is even though he was too much at times, and a lot of times, I thought his character arc was kind of interesting. Yeah, well, and I think that this type of character is something that, that Stephen King really likes, right? This nerdy, misunderstood, intelligent, but, uh, you know flawed character <laughs> um, yeah and kind of like a bully and a victim of bullying yeah he's um, a just, he's a bully because he had been a victim basically yeah, yeah. Um, but the first time we were introduced to him he's a psychic that's going to go to this house and he's at home eating whipped cream out of the fridge and then he turns around and all of the the fridge is just covered in blood and there's horrible apparitions coming out and he seems sort of annoyed and he tells them not to bother him because he needs the money. So, like, don't try to scare me away. I'm, right. I'm gonna get paid five thousand dollars to investigate this house. Uh, and I, I, I kind of liked that moment. I thought yeah. it was a scare that seemed not scary to me, a little bit heavy-handed. So I liked the way that he was just sort of disinterested in it. Um, I, I like again. I, I get that I've seen that character before and done better. That's sort of where I begin and end with Emery. Some of the more problematic things, too, is for me, the main character, uh, played by Nancy Travis, uh, her Dr. Joyce Reardon, she's supposed to have this huge sort of tragic arc where she is sort of driven insane by this need to prove this supernatural stuff. And I've seen Nancy Travis in other movies. I'm a, I've got a soft spot for So I Married an Axe Murderer. And, you know, I don't think she's a bad actress, but I'm kind of embarrassed for her in some of the scenes in this movie. And I don't even think it's her fault. I think some of the dialogue is just ear-crushing. <laughs> like, I, I think whoever was directing this, um, he was getting them to overact. Because she was overacting. You know, the crusty old head of her department, yeah. she's a... Uh, a professor of psychology is it yeah uh, and her department wants to her department head thinks that she's wasting money and wants to deny her tenure have her tenure revoked he was just way too evil yeah. um, way too obtuse uh, very similar actually to the psychiatrist in poltergeist 3 both of them were just they were being pushed I assume by the directors to go past the point of skepticism right to outright hostility. The ghosts should be enough of a villain. We don't need to bring in these extra outside sources of villains. And again, this is Stephen King stealing from himself, right? Uh, mm -hmm. The interesting thing about that to Matthew is that the actor who was playing the Mr. Cooper character at the university died midway through the production. He had a heart attack playing tennis, dropped dead. 
So his whole closing element that was going to be happening in the second act had to be retrofitted. And all of a sudden, Emery's mother started to take a bigger role in the oh, that makes sense. in the later part of it. So some of the problems with Rose Red didn't necessarily have to do with, you know, the writing of the production. When you're halfway through this, you know, huge production and you lose one of your cast members, it's that that's really hard to course correct. Uh Yeah. It's it's not an excuse, it's an a reason. It's a reason, you know, or one of the reasons why I think this thing falls. Could be. I mean, I think he was overacting anyway. Agreed. Um, Agreed. <laughs> As, as was sort of everybody in this. Uh, one of the bright, shining spots was Melanie Linsky. Yay! Uh, who is... I just rewatched her first movie, Heavenly Creatures, the Peter Jackson movie. Which it's was so good that it's an amazing she still movie. has, after all of those years on Three and a Half Men or Two and a Half Men, she still hasn't burnt all of her goodwill. No. I still like seeing her in things. Every now and then I'll bump into Melanie Linsky and I'm always happy to see her. And again, she's got a fairly thankless role here, but I think she does well with it. Yeah, and she's, I think, the only character or the only actor that's not overacting in this movie. I think her performance is appropriate. Yeah. She's the older sister of... Uh, talking about pet peeves... Uh, <laughs> the autistic her child. Young, younger sister is autistic in that... I would say it's very 90s, but I think it still goes on where people's understanding of autism is that it's kind of a superpower. Mm -hmm. And so she's like autistic in this really lame filmic kind of way. Um, so I thought the younger sister, who again, child actor, I think with not a very good actor's director, she does what she can, but I thought Melanie Linsky as the older sister did a pretty good job. Yeah, and it's another one of those really cringy things with the uh, autistic kid or whatever that she's basically as, quote, autistic as she needs to be in any given scene. Yeah, like, she gets less autistic yeah. when she deals with the handsome hero. Yeah, um, Matt Kiesler, the, quote, handsome he hero who's <clears throat> uh, hooked up romantically with the the Nancy Travis character, is another actor who I like and I think is decent, who's once again trapped in a movie that's not so great, which seems to be Matt Kieser's lot in life. <laughs> <laughs> Some of Stephen King's dialogue that, when you read it in a book, it would be fine, you know, uh, Russian hand and Roman fingers, or, or, or just weird turns of phrase that he likes to use and repeat. I find a lot of times in the books, you can sort of autocorrect it in your own brain to make it work. But when he tries to ham-fistedly squeeze that into a screenplay, it's way worse than the televised TV version of The Shining. But there's some of it going on in here, too, where people say things to themselves or just generally that just nobody would say that. Nobody would ever talk that way to themselves or anyone else. It just it breaks any reality to it. Also, at the beginning of every episode, <clears throat> there's a shot of the house where Nancy Travis does some ominous voiceover. Right. And some of the stuff she says is just ridiculous. Uh, I wrote down this one line, and she's like, I guess saying these profound aphoristic things that don't make sense. She says, as our bodies grow old, so too do our houses. Like, <laughs> yeah, okay. You mean everything <laughs> I mean, gets older at the same time? <laughs> Actually, your body gets it seems to get withered quicker than a house would, but it, I mean, sure, who would disagree? Time passes, and so that happens to houses. Yeah. Um, but they, I mean, it's just filled with it. Like, if you just ran together all of her voiceover dialogue, it would just be, I don't know what, 
five minutes of just what the fuck aphorisms yeah. stuff that's not necessarily not true but does, is not worth saying and the time that we spent setting up all of these different psychic investigators and how they have different things the the one woman the of the family tree of Deschanel <laughs> whenever she touches an audience uh, an object she can sort of find out things about the past or another woman has this writing skills where she can write and communicate to the ghosts and another the older fellow has this precognition where he can sort of anticipate things that are going to happen a few seconds before they do but they don't do anything with those few characters they spend a lot of time setting them up but once they're in the house they're either just wiped off the table right away or in a different room <laughs> for the bulk of this, this what we're shown so I don't know. It's another one of these movies that I like. I feel the potential to the left and right. I don't think the cast sucks, but I think that they're having a real hard time. <laughs> and four and a half hours. It, it's kind of punishing. But here's the weird yeah, thing. Yeah, I, I don't think that that's really that fair to criticize its length because, I mean, it is a miniseries, right? Yeah. Like, you couldn't criticize the bad season of American Horror Story because it's 13 yeah. hours or whatever. Well, I, I guess I see what you're saying. But the weird thing to me is that I'm saying all of these terrible things about Rose Red, and I've gone through that journey. This was probably my fourth or fifth time. And I know for some fucking reason, maybe not soon, maybe five years from now, maybe ten years from now, I'll get it into my head that maybe I should give Rose Red another <laughs> try. Maybe this time it will be the movie I hope it to be. I, I have a problem when it comes to Stephen King, but I don't necessarily, not to the point where I'll make excuses for it, right? Much the way a Star Trek fan loves the Star Trek The Next Generation or loves the original series, but in their heart will concede that there's a lot of shit there. <laughs> I love Stephen King, but there's a lot of shit there. And as example, Rose Red. Uh, after having watched the first two episodes of this, kind of binge-watching it one night, starting at around midnight, so I was getting pretty sleepy, um, I kind of wanted to put in the last disc and see how things played out. So there's not, there's not really much good that I can say about it exactly. But, but it I keeps you watching like it. Watching it. Uh, I, did, I didn't like the way it ended. <clears throat> Excuse me, the, the last disc was, or the last episode was certainly the weakest. Um, but there was something I don't know what it was some sort of X factor that was kind of interesting um, another thing about the characters there was that the handsome British guy from arachnophobia mm -hmm. who's uh, I think he was also warlock in the warlock Julian movie. Sands is his name <clears throat> he was really interesting too in some ways with his dynamic with Emery because he was like like handsome kind of heroic really nice to the autistic girl, but mean to Emery, meaner than he had to be. Emery was kind of mean to the autistic girl, so he was, Julian Sands was kind of defending her, but then his behavior went full on into bullying behavior as well. Um, so their dynamic was kind of interesting, and I just liked watching the way um, the characters played off of each other. Yeah, uh, I was saying that I think that Julian Sands actually performance-wise, can hold his head relatively high. I don't think... I mean, he didn't have as many tough lines to choke out as some of the other ones, but uh, as a rule, I've never been a huge Julian Sands fan, so I kind of was surprised that I liked his character as much as I did, comparably, anyway. But what I will say about Rose Red is this. For as long as it is, it does hold my attention, and I have watched it several times. And as a piecemeal, if somebody wasn't into Stephen King, they could watch this, and 
unbeknownst to them, they're getting a little piece of Carrie, and they're getting a little piece of The Shining, and they're getting little pieces of uh, other things from the Stephen King universe that I think are legit and interesting. They're just way more legit and interesting in the source material than they're ever going to be in a made-for-TV movie. we came to the point where we're going to rank these six ghost movies and uh, this is your fourth round of doing ghost movies and uh, how does this bunch stack up I think maybe last time we had a maybe slightly better list overall <laughs> um yeah the this movie unlike last time it doesn't have something great like devil's backbone um, but there's nothing in it that's Terrible. Well, I mean, I think Killer Guys 3 is objectively terrible, but I didn't mind watching it. Yes. I didn't um, find them, for the most part, to be that harder watch. I mean, the length of, of Rose Red is somewhat punishing, but like I said in the review, despite all of these problems I had, I still watched all four and a half hours of it. So, <laughs> I guess that's that's points for something. But Yeah, and this is certainly better than the first two lists I did for you. <laughs> if this had continued along those lines, I probably wouldn't be a guest again. But, you well, know, things it, are looking up a little bit. It's funny, because in the first episode, I'd offered you a, an entirely different list that had, like, The Sixth Sense and Session 9 <laughs> and the original haunting, and it was, like, kind of an embarrassment of riches. And you slapped that down. So I said, oh, okay, well, then do this one, asshole. <laughs> 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 but... Uh, here we are with your fourth episode on the subject of ghosts, and I am curious to hear how you're going to rank these bitches. All right, so starting at the bottom, uh, I think probably no surprises here. Uh, the lowest ranking movie will be Poltergeist 3. I am kind of charmed by it on a personal level, but it's objectively bad, and probably nobody should watch it. Okay. So, number six is Poltergeist 3. Uh, number five, Rose Red. Uh, although I did say it's not fair to judge it by its length because it was a mini-series, it does, you know, start wearing on you after a while. Uh, there are things about it that aren't so bad, but I, I wouldn't recommend Rose Red either, so I would put it at number five. Uh, number four is Mirrors, which had continued on the trajectory that it did, you know, that it started on, would have ranked much higher, um, but... I don't know, when his kid starts get, getting too precocious, um, talking to things in the mirror, and things get long and boring, and then it becomes an action movie for some reason, and it the music gets too bombastic, etc., etc., it just starts to fall apart. So, uh, Mirrors could have been a better movie than it is, but it makes the bottom of the list. Uh, the top three, uh, number three, House on Haunted Hill which I'm not 100% sure if I would recommend it to somebody, but I kind of enjoyed watching it, and I don't think it's all that punishing for somebody uh, 
if somebody wants to give it a look, you won't love it, but you won't hate it. Yeah, you won't necessarily re regret your time spent. Yeah. Uh, number two, uh, Woman in Black. I thought it could have been a better movie than it was, uh, probably with a different actor, if the main character wasn't quite so mopey, but it had so much going for it. It was just such a nice classic ghost movie. Um, I would say it's worth watching. Uh, which brings us to number one, Conjuring, although there were, we discussed this uh, at length, there were times when uh, the creepiness or the scariness gave way to sort of familiarity and things got to be a little bit too much. Um, the moments that were scary were really freaking scary and um, when the director was uh, handling the ghosts uh, with a light touch, doing the shadows and just a little bit of music, uh, and the actors were really doing a great job. Um, this was the only movie where I actually was scared a few times watching it, so I, I would put it at number one. Very good. So you said you were confident you knew where we were going to disagree. Uh, I'm just yeah. curious, where do you think we disagree? I think we got our number one and two flipped. Yeah, but we didn't. You actually just won. I did. <laughs> you just won the first rank in review. Um, wow. Congratulations. I, I want to thank uh, Larry <laughs> and God, and most especially Karen Giese. Matt, can I tell you something? What's that? It's going to be a spoiler. The previous episode to this, Karen Giese won her second episode of rank in review. <laughs> <laughs> We've just had two winners in a row. After 60 straight episodes of nobody winning rank and review, we just had two episodes in a row where people won. <laughs> but unfortunately, Karen's still going to be gloating <laughs> because she now has two wins to your one. <laughs> but... Two wins and a uh, six for six wrong, although I do have the belt. Right, right. Well, I just want to say... Yeah, I agree, but I'm going to go through this really quickly anyway. Um, Poltergeist 3 is clearly the worst of these movies. I, again, have a personal nostalgia for the 80s horror movies, and it's not a great sequel, but it is a watchable thing. If you like the Poltergeist universe, I guess, I mean, be my guest. I would be very surprised that anybody who didn't grow up in the era or grow up with that franchise would be at all interested in this. <laughs> so, down she goes. Uh... I, th that was the closest thing we came to disagreeing because I almost put Rose Red at the bottom, but there was more driving me to keep watching in Rose Red than there was in Poltergeist 3. So in spite of its length and in spite of some of the wonky acting, uh, <laughs> it managed to be second from the bottom. <laughs> Good for <laughs> it. Uh, yes, Mirrors in fourth position because of the frustrating potential that was there and the lack of delivery on that potential. House on Haunted Hill sort of defied my expectations. That was another one I thought that you might just hate. <laughs> I think this is one of those things that if it catches you on the right day, you might actually really enjoy it. Or if you caught it on the wrong day, you might just find it toxic. <laughs> so Yeah, I think it actually helped the order that I watched it in because after some more trying movies, like after spending four hours on Rose Red, you know, it's like a nice palate cleanser. I put The Woman in Black in second place, even though I, when I was talking about the movie, I, I, I do have a lot of love for the source material. I like the vision of this ghost in the funeral garb. I think it's creepy, and it's definitely more in my wheelhouse as far as like the moldy old mansions, you know, period ghost movies. And honestly, I probably will rewatch 
The Woman in Black maybe more than I watched The Conjuring, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you that The Woman in Black is a better movie than The Conjuring. I think that The Conjuring really achieves some magic, and again, it's this James Wan thing. It's like all of these elements we've seen before, but it's working, and it's working well, and it's scary. I do think that the later into the movie we go, the less scary and the more familiar it becomes, but it's a solid box off. It was a solid box office hit for a reason. Um, I don't think it's up there with like some of the, the, the high watermarks of horror, but I understand why it was a big hit and uh, I will watch the sequel. So in this batch of movies, for sure, yeah, The Conjuring the number one and uh, Matthew Risling, new rank and review champion. <laughs> So it's been a while since we've done some proper Jerry's, god damn it. So we're gonna do some Jerry's this episode. And uh, our, our new freshly minted champion uh, has made some selections. So I'm gonna try and guess where these awards are going to going to land. I'm gonna use my knowledge of Matthew Risling against him. <laughs> so uh, where do you wanna start with today's Jerry's, my friend? Uh, so I think we're going to do mostly familiar ones. Okay. Um, we're going to do Three that are very common, uh, the best scare, the best death, of course, the ever-popular WTF moment. <laughs> uh, and then the fourth category, which works uh, well for this particular group of films, is the most pointless fake ending in a ghost movie. Okay. So, um, starting with uh, best scare. Best sort of boo moment. Um, yep. I, I mean, there's good ones throughout especially the top two movies, Woman in Black and The Conjuring. And even though it was spoiled in the trailer, I cannot overemphasize how strong the clapping game was in The Conjuring for me. So I'm going to say the second time we see the clapping ghost next to Lily Taylor in the stairwell for best scare. But that's my guess. That was the very, very close runner-up. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Obviously, my favorite one was the one that I've spent the most time talking about in The Conjuring, but it's the two little girls in the bedroom right. um, with, with just that look of abject terror on the older daughter's face. But the clapping game is a really close second. It's, it's pretty strong. It's pretty strong. So you're a loser so far. Loser! You can pull up your socks a little bit, Larry. <laughs> uh, best death. I think this might be an easy one, Matt. I think it's an easy one. My knee-jerk response is Amy Smart in Mirrors, having her jaw rended from her face. It is obviously Amy Smart in Mirrors. <laughs> I'm a big uh, wiener! <laughs> even if you don't want to uh, watch the movie, I assume that scene's on YouTube or something. I think you should check that out. It really is. Uh, There's a couple of really grisly death scenes in that movie that are really well done, but seem like they belong in a different movie somehow. Uh, WTF moment. Oh, goodness. Which is another one where I've got a pretty strong runner-up. <sighs> that scene in Poltergeist 3, I gotta say, where Laura Van Boyle erupts from the corpse of Tangina <laughs> was pretty <laughs> fucked up. Like, I could not have anticipated that happening. Um, uh, I'd be tempted to go there, but I know there's probably some really obvious thing that I'm missing. <laughs> so what was your choice? 
Yeah, my two choices, uh, both things that I've mentioned already. The winner was at the end of House on Haunted Hill, where they're on top of that tall building, uh, and they're about to die of exposure, presumably, and our hero says, glibly, that was a hell of a party. With just absolutely no respect <laughs> to what they've gone That's your what the fuck moment? Okay. Uh, although the runner-up were uh, Tom Skerritt kissing his daughter on the mouth too frequently for my comfort in mm. Poltergeist 3 in a way that doesn't get addressed. <laughs> Fair enough. Like I said, I could rewatch Poltergeist 3 to investigate this, but I just don't want to watch Poltergeist 3 again. So well, I'm going to take your word for that one. Uh, and number four, the pointless fake-out endings. Pointless fake-out endings. Or another way to phrase that would be endings where the ghost shows up after the movie's over because they want to keep it open for a sequel. It's all over, or is it? Yes. Oh, God. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Maybe Poltergeist 3, because of how saccharine it was at the very end, everybody was so in love with each other. I've, I've saved the day because I've proved to you that I love you. We're going to be best friends forever. And then the slow pan out from the building... Dun, dun, dun. But I, I don't I don't think that's the one you're going for. <laughs> no, but that was my strong runner-up for an honorable mention. Because the problem was so clearly resolved. Yeah. It had been taken towards the light. The ghost was gone. And he wasn't even angry. He just wanted to be taken into the light. So yeah. he's fine. Yeah. So why is there that evil laugh at the end? No good uh, So very pointless. <laughs> Obviously, they had Poltergeist 4 in mind. <laughs> Uh, until they saw the box office. Oh, and I also want to uh, take this opportunity before you move on, sorry, Matt, to say that I did not mean to make a punchline out of that child's death. <laughs> Just in case anybody misconstrued that. I honestly didn't know her chubby cheeks were part of an ailment. I, To quote the, from Dust Till Dawn, I may be a, a, a bastard, but I'm not a fucking bastard. <laughs> okay. Oh, I was just breaking your balls about that. I mean, it's true, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's not your fault. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> uh, so, what was your what was your most <laughs> troublesome ending then? The most pointless scare was the Annabelle doll at the end of The Conjuring. Right. When we see that doll, and then the music tells us it's haunted, but we knew it was haunted. It would be surprising <laughs> if it wasn't haunted. That's why it's there. There is no indication that this doll would not be haunted, or that anything that happened with this. Conjuring family had anything to do with whether or not this doll is haunted. Oh no! And that was all just selling tickets for Annabelle that was going to be coming out next year. <laughs> that was, yeah, that was pretty unabashed salesmanship there. Um, but it didn't spoil the meal. I still think definitely check out the Conjuring. Definitely check out the Woman in Black. The rest of them, I think, if you listen to this podcast, you'll probably know if it's something you'll like or not. So yeah. Uh, Another solid ghost episode with my dear, dear Yay. friend, Matthew Risling, talking to us all the way from the big shitty of Toronto. <laughs> Is there anything you want to say to bring us out here, brother? Uh, no, just that I'm looking forward, uh, I guess, in scare quotes, to the next and hopefully final Poltergeist installment whenever it is that I do my next episode and yes then, we still have that can... remake to deal with coming soon kitties and then uh, maybe I'll, I'll change my list of topics or I'll try to shake things up but I guess I'll, I will uh, be defending my title presumably with uh, another list of ghost stories sometime in the 2016 can't wait brother thanks so much 
there was 60 straight episodes of Ranking Review wherein there was no honest champion for Ranking Review crowned again. And now we have witnessed two episodes in a row where my guest has gone six for six. Have we opened a new door into Rank and Review history where all of a sudden we're going to be passing the crown from episode to episode? I don't know, and I guess neither do you, but the only way to find out is to keep listening. I hope you enjoyed episode 64 of Rank and Review, Ghosts 5. You can send me feedback at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W. Let me know how you would rank the movies. Let me know if I was right or wrong about any of the movies. Let me know about movies you want me to talk about. Any feedback would be welcome. Also, please stop by that Facebook page and throw me a like. Thank you, Rank and Review fans. And if you could do me that favor of a couple of mouse clicks or just spreading the word on the podcast to the other film freaks in your life, I would genuinely appreciate it. I appreciate everyone who enjoys the podcast, and I certainly do hope you continue to. My name is Larry Parsons. I'm your host and Random Canadian. And until next time, thank you for listening to Rankin Review.